Welcome to the Basic Income Podcast. I'm Owen Poindexter. And I'm Jim Pugh. Last year, we had an episode where we answered some questions that folks have sent in to us, trying to provide thoughts and sometimes maybe actual full answers to some of the common things that people were wondering about basic income. It seemed to get a pretty good reception last time around, so we thought we would do it again. Yeah, and a lot of questions we have sort of touched on in the past, so we're going to focus mostly on new ground here. So here's one we've kind of breezed by a little bit, but deserves a longer discussion. Uh, it comes from Minimize Me on Twitter. Do you have to pay income tax on a UBI? Jim, what do you think? So I've seen different proposals going either way here, but for the most part, yes. It seems like when people are talking about these policy designs, the idea is UBI would be income. This would be money that you're quote-unquote earning just by being alive, but you are still earning it. And so you would be paying taxes on that. And so the effective tax rate is actually then going to depend on what else you're earning. If, if that's all your money, you're probably not paying much taxes. But if you're getting a UBI on, t- on top of a high salary, then actually you could be paying quite a high rate on that, uh, which is, I think, that potentially is part of a, a natural way to, to have the UBI be more funded by more well-off people. Yeah, this is a major fork in the road, and there are complications and implications on whichever route you take. But I think you, if not solve, you address some of the natural issues that come up around UBI if it is counted as regular income. There's the taxation one you just mentioned. There's also the matter of benefits. Um, How does this affect, you know, whatever other benefits you're on? And that introduces complications if, um, you know, all of a sudden you're knocking people off benefits and you'd certainly have to do some rejiggering around that to make sure that you're not leaving people worse off uh, just based on benefit cliffs that they're running into. At the same time, it can help address, you know, some of these, these issues around do you need those benefit systems if the phase outs are sort of scheduled appropriately or, you know, we're, we're doing whatever we should be doing with those benefit systems, um, then having a UBI on top of that should all work smoothly. Obviously, that wouldn't happen if you just dropped a UBI right now and it counted as regular income, but, uh, but those seem like solvable, if not easy, problems. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, an issue that's the current pilot programs in the U.S. are currently dealing with figuring out, okay, you're giving people this money, what's that actually doing as far as what else is going on, what what taxes they pay, and, and what benefits they're getting. Um, and I do think that it is, uh, yeah, I agree, it doesn't have to be necessarily a crazy difficult problem, but it's one that is complex because I mean, we, we know there's so many programs out there, and in certain situations, those programs do become critically important. And so thinking about what the interplay is here and do you unintentionally end up causing an issue for someone like I think particularly around medical coverage uh, if if you're if you're not thoughtful about what in what situations this is and is not counted as regular income you may end up with people getting in big trouble uh, because they're losing key benefits because of it yeah and I think it's worth saying that the other path is a viable path. You could have it not count as regular income. That would have to be a sort of a federal carve-out thing where it couldn't obviously couldn't be a pilot program. Um, it probably couldn't be a state program. You'd have to get some kind of exception, and it would be politically difficult. So I think it's the harder political path. Uh, but then you don't have to worry about 
messing up people's benefits. Then one other thing I would add is that the thinking about the different types of UBI proposals out there, the one type of proposal that it would not you would not be paying any income tax on it is if you are doing it as, as a tax credit. So if you were to expand the earned income tax credit in some ways, that money is not taxable income. That's money you're getting back on your taxes, and so it's not actually adding to your income total. So if you, if you have a bigger EITC, or if you turn that into a negative income tax, then no, in that scenario, you actually would not be paying taxes. All right, our next question is from Warren, and he asks, what is the likely impact of a full UBI on wages and working conditions for different types of work? Yeah, this is this is a biggie, and I think could be um, one of the major selling points of UBI. We sort of need to prove this out, I think, through experiments. But the natural assumption is that when you provide a UBI, it's unconditional income, and so that gives you leverage when you are negotiating with employers or potential employers. Um, you know, we've had some teacher strikes in this area recently, and you know, when you're striking from your job, eventually. You might have a strike fund through your union, but funds dry up eventually, and maybe you don't have much of a strike fund to begin with. But if you have an unconditional income that's enough to get by, and your employer obviously knows that, then it gives you leverage to hold out for your demands. So one would think that working conditions would improve significantly, and there'd be jobs, you know, minimum wage jobs perhaps, that are just onerous and kind of terrible that they have to raise the wages or improve the conditions to just attract workers to begin with. But I, I think we'll need to see that in action for people to, to really feel that as a selling point. Yeah, I think the tough thing here is it's, it's a very hard thing to test because you don't actually really see what will happen until you have saturation. Just doing randomized control trials, I mean, if only one person out of 100 or 1,000 is getting the UBI, that's not enough to fundamentally change the conditions in, in these different businesses and these different work environments. So we can potentially look at some of the work that's been happening abroad and, and see, uh, for example, give directly's Kenya experiment if, if they're able to find information about that, that'll be interesting to look at. But it's something that I, I think we, we definitely do want to do further experimentation and research on. Um, one thing that I would note, I, I think I, I agree with your point, Owen, that if, if UBI is sufficient to really be an opt-out, so it's providing you with that greater leverage to, to negotiate with your employer, um, I, my assumption would certainly be that working conditions would improve across the board. I think wages are trickier, though, because on one hand, you do have greater negotiating power, which potentially allows you to negotiate greater wages. On the other hand, because you have this baseline income from UBI, the pressure may be off to some degree to, to get as high a pay from your job because let's say you were earning 30000 a year before UBI, you're getting 12000 now, which means that your effective income would have gone up to forty two. If your employer's like, well, we're going to lower your income by two k now, you're still coming out significantly ahead. So do people actually take that opportunity to, to push for a higher wage or does that mean that at least in jobs where people have motivation beyond just a salary to be doing that work, uh, could that actually mean that wages might go down by a significant amount because of, of that offset from, from the, the UBI income that you're getting? And I, I really have no idea. I think this is a fascinating area that, yeah, we really need 
both more experimentation and more analysis to, to better understand what will happen here. Yeah, and Warren also wrote in with a question about would there still be a need for the minimum wage uh, with the UBI? And I think short answer, yes. But, um, but you know, I've seen people make the case that you can kind of trade a little bit of minimum wage for some UBI or that, you know, there are jobs where um, the employer can't really support a $15 minimum wage or that, you know, that, that really tightens up their margins. And if you had a UBI, that's less of a, you, you don't have to worry about that so much. Um, and I don't have any easy answers other than that. I think you still need some kind of minimum wage. Um, I am very squeamish about lowering the minimum wage as it's probably too low to begin with right now. But yeah, I think a lot of the the pressure around raising it does naturally start to go away when people are taken care of regardless of their working situation. Right. I mean, UBI is effectively giving you uh, an ongoing add-on to whatever the minimum wage is. And so, I mean, because the federal minimum wage has not been raised in decades, it effectively is far lower than it was before. So, I, I mean, we'd have to do the exact math. But it's possible that if you did a UBI now, you would effectively be going back to what the minimum wage right. was in the 70s. Literally. Yeah. All right, here's a, a fun one we got from Liani over email. Uh, how does basic income contribute to system change? A lot of directions we could go in there. What yeah. do you think, Jim? I, so uh, I imagine this may be controversial with our listeners and certainly people broadly because I think, as we've talked about in the past, people come at basic income for different reasons with different goals in mind. And I think that there's quite a wide spectrum of how much people would like to see our system radically change in the way it is today. And I think that oftentimes, yeah, people have very different expectations about if you were to do, if you were to enact basic income, how different would things be? I think most people would agree that immediately you wouldn't have radical change, but what happens after 5, 10, 20 years? Something that's actually informed my thinking a lot here is, it's from the book Four Futures by Peter Frazee. He talks about uh, this idea from a French socialist, Andre Gortz, who describes this category of policies as non-reformist reforms. And the idea here is that you can enact a policy that really fits within the system as it exists today. And I think basic income is, is a good example of that because there isn't an inherently anything immensely disruptive if we were to establish basic income. You start paying people money every month, it makes people's lives hopefully radically better but nothing about society ends up looking that much different than it does right now. But if basic income, if, if you're giving people enough that you are really empowering them to a large degree, and so by doing so, you, you effectively shift the balance of power in a country such that you end up with people having a majority of the power as opposed to the concentration that currently exists in the hands of, of the, the very wealthy and the, and the elites in our system, does that ultimately turn on its head the way our entire system operates? And so you end up in a, in, in a radically different looking society after that has a chance to play out in our democracy in the way that everything about our system is run. So I, I don't know. I think it certainly seems like there could be a pathway there. But this is something that I think then comes back to how you design the policy, how you talk about the policy, all those things are going to have an impact on, yeah, where where this ultimately goes. Yeah, it's, you know, I think the big fascinating question about, and the one that we really won't know the answer to until it happens, 
but yeah, when when I talk to people about basic income, if they're more sort of on a have a conservative bent toward not wanting things to change too much, I might find myself leaning toward a you know like this is just taking care of people and you know the, we don't have to change everything. We could, we just do this and everything else can stay the same. And it's, you know Andrew Yang has that line about um, this is just capitalism that starts at it doesn't start at zero, uh, which makes it seem like it's you know, it, it's not like a huge radical thing, but. Am I interested in things like four-day work week, um, getting people who are you know at the bottom of the income spectrum more politically active, um, more community engagement, you know, artist collectives, blah blah blah. You can kind of go nuts with this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's the the most exciting stuff about what could society look like if we were providing a guaranteed income, a guaranteed level of subsistence, and. And yeah, I don't think it would happen immediately. People would have to kind of get used to it and think about their new possibilities. But if it was just that people were were taken care of, okay, that's enough. But yeah, I think the the really juicy stuff could be in that systemic change that that could happen. But we, we'd have to see and and have to fight for it. And I think if you are someone who does who wants system change, who thinks things do need to look radically different, I've seen a lot of people with that perspective out there who are sometimes quite anti-UBI because, I mean, their view is, oh, this is working within a capitalist system. I want an entirely different socialist or communist system in place. I oppose this. It is hard to imagine how, in any scenario, you would be able to suddenly, over the course of a relatively short period of time, completely turn our system on its head. And so I think that, uh, again, if your goal is to move to a more socialist system, if you're thinking about it from a strategic perspective, something that is able to start small and ramp up is probably a much more plausible way to make that happen than tearing everything out and just instituting something brand new uh, that looks nothing like what we have in this very moment. Yeah, I had one socialist ask me if they thought UBI would... Um, hasten or slow down the downfall of capitalism. That wasn't quite how he put it. But he's basically like, if this moves us to socialism, then great. If it doesn't, then then it doesn't. Then then not great, according to him. Um, and yeah, I feel like in, if you want that systemic change, I would think about you know where you want to end up and what's what's a step in that direction to take. And because if you take one step, then all right, you're one step closer. I feel like a lot of the major changes we've seen, you, you can trace them back to, to these smaller steps. And, uh, and the other option, I think, is just making the current system, let it calcify and break down to the point that everything just kind of explodes and falls apart. And then your vision will somehow be the new thing that rises up. And maybe I'm being a little too dismissive there. But uh, if you're not going to take incremental steps, I'm kind of wondering what, what those bigger steps look like and if they are nonviolent ultimately. Uh, but yeah, I feel like if you are interested in systemic change, it's likely that a basic income helps you get there because it, it enfranchises people and gets people out of desperation. And that is probably going to help with the reforms you want if they're at all like the reforms that I want. Also, I think that we sometimes do get tripped up in the semantics of ideology and like, are you a socialist? Are you a capitalist? I think that what I feel like makes much more sense to focus on is what are our moral goals here? Like, do we agree that we should be eradicating poverty? Do we agree that 
no matter your situation of birth, you should actually have a real shot. Do we agree that people in society should be empowered? I feel like we could have a much more productive conversation if, if we can like be talking about those as opposed to head-to-head versus like what are actual ideological. Yeah, I think so much of the socialism capitalism discussion right now is um, based in people trying to trigger a certain impulse in their audience. A lot of it's trying to trigger sort of your conservative impulse to not want socialism or, or you know, sometimes the other way around. But yeah, I, I'd rather start from a place of shared values and specific policies. And do, do these policies bring us toward our shared values? And obviously, I think UBI does. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Sorry we weren't able to get to all the questions, but we will be doing another Q&A episode in the near future, so we'll have another chance then to to get some of the ones we missed. Also, I wanted to share that for those of you who aren't already aware, the 19th World Congress of the Basic Income Earth Network is coming up in August. It's August 22nd to 25 in Hyderabad, India. This is going to be where people who are working on UBI all over the world are going to come together share the research they're doing, share the experiments that they have going on, share the political progress in their various countries. So if you do have a chance to to go there, I think it's going to be a really exciting space. There'll be a lot going on, a lot to learn, and you'll get to to meet the people who who are doing all this work. So that's it for this week. Thank you to our producer, Eric Davidson. And if you like what you hear, please do make sure to rate and review us on the podcast service of your choice and tell your friends about the podcast. We are always looking for new listeners. We'll talk to you next time.